Good morning, beautiful people. This is Nube sharing space with you here at Prison Focus Radio on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. We are going to get right started with our show, talk, me talking with Robert Dixon Jr. Here we go. Okay, all right, folks. And next I have um, here with me Robert Dixon Jr. Um, if you didn't catch our Juneteenth conversation um, from last week, go to the California Prison Focus Facebook page and please check that out. Robert Dixon Jr. has recently returned to us after spending 36 years behind bars and uh, suffering nine parole denials. We are so glad to have uh, Robert home with us. Thank you for joining me again, Robert. Well, thank you for having me, Nube. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Um, it's an honor. And uh, I just want to be able to share what my experiences have been like uh, with the hope of, of educating your, your audience and uh, bringing about some sort of change in how things take place in our system here in California. Well, wonderful. That is great because you really have a compelling story, Robert. And so with that, I would like to start by asking you, who did you feel you were when you were first sentenced? Um, I believe it was at 19. And then what was the first thing that sparked your path to transformation? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, who was I? So in 1984, 83, I was in describing myself uh, a sociopath. I was, uh, I lacked empathy, I was callous, I was reckless, I was impulsive, uh, I was angry, I was resentful, um, I associated with negative people who condoned my attitude and beliefs. We found something in common in each other in the neighborhood that I grew up, and we caused a lot of chaos uh, for our families and our neighbors in Oakland, California. And so I had been that way since I was a teenager, growing up in the system, California Youth Authority, Juvenile Halls. Uh, I was a delinquent. I, was, I had some serious um, issues. Uh, that my parents could not seem to manage, and uh, nor could the county of uh, Alameda. Um, so that's where it all began. Hmm. Yeah, that'll make one uh, vulnerable to the system for sure. Well, before we get into some other things, I, I know that um, I definitely want to, I do want to stick with that first spark to your path of transformation at somewhere in all of those early teenage years where um, so much of the kind of shadow side of you was being, was somewhat being nurtured, there were definitely these other parts, these, these positive, enlightened parts of yourself that were not, um, that weren't being nurtured. And because 
there was a spark. There was something that happened for you inside that set you on that path to transformation. And I would love for you to share from there. Uh, interesting story. So it was in, uh, it was 1985. I'll never forget it. Uh, it's actually been featured this part of the story, uh, which I think was the catalyst to, to my change. Um, and it was while I was awaiting to be transferred to the first prison after being classified uh, at the Vacaville State Prison in Vacaville, uh, City of Vacaville, um, CMF is what it's called, California Medical Facility. That time was the rece uh, reception center for inmates, Northern California inmates. So I was I was sent there. Uh, I was twenty, barely turned twenty-one years old. Um, Fifteen years to life. I had been sentenced. Fifteen years to life for my participation in a robbery uh, that led to uh, a man losing his life, uh, unfortunately. And so I was in the cell, and you had to be confined to the cell, uh, confined to quarters until you're classified, because they don't know if you have enemies at the prison or what. So as soon as you're a new arrival, you're on kind of on a lockdown status for however long it takes. And it usually takes between 24 to 72 hours for them to classify you and then to release you into the general population. I could hear this. I was in my cell, and I was looking out the cell window, and I can see these inmates going out to the yard, the recreation yard, in green uniforms, because that's what we wore uh, as reception inmates. And I could hear this sound, this clinging sound. I couldn't see what it, the clinging was, but I could hear it from my cell. Um, and I would lay on my bed, and the sound just kept, it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. It stuck with me. I didn't, I didn't really know what it was, but it was a clinging sound that almost had a rhythm, a rhythm to it that helped me make it through that period of isolation. So when they released me to general population after classified me and determined that I didn't have any, you know, enemies there that, you know, would cause a problem, um, I went straight. The first thing I did was follow those green uniforms to the yard. And what I found was what we call the weight pile. It was a, you know, it's a pit of gravel, dirt, where in that time, um, weights were in prison, lots of weights. And there was a lot of free weights, and there would be all these inmates, of, you know, segregated, of course, because prison is probably uh, one of the most segregated places that I know, even though we do have quite a few in mainstream society, but not quite like prison. Prison mm -hmm. is another level to segregation. Uh, and to some degree is promoted. That's another conversation. Yes. However, however, the clinging sound that I was hearing was so in prison. They don't use they don't use uh, they don't tie the weights down when they put them on, and they use what they call pig iron. Uh, it's not an Olympic style weight. It's a more uh, a free weight, and so they would just slide the barbells onto the bar leaving them loose like that, and they would spot whoever was doing the bench press, but they would bounce the weight off their chest, and I'm talking 400 pounds, 350, 375, 400 pounds. These are big dudes in the pen, and they're, they're letting the weight, as they take it out the rack, it bounces off the chest, and that bouncing made that the weights cling. Oh, And that wow. was the clinging sound that I was hearing in my cell. 
And it was also my introduction to uh, what would become my passion in life and the, the, uh, the beginning of my change, which was natural bodybuilding, fitness. Fitness became my panacea. What would it would have been like for you had you gotten that before you went in? You know, so you know, I, you know, I would say I had had I had enjoyed uh, outdoors and, and fitness activities um, up to the point of being incarcerated. Um, you know, I was I was also involved in fitness in California Youth Authority. Uh, I was involved in fitness in the juvenile halls, whatever, wherever there was fitness or some form of activity, basketball, um, you know, weightlifting, well, calisthenics in, in juvenile hall. It was more calisthenics and, and machine weights and basketball. And then California Youth Authority, I started, I was able to play football because it was more like a, it's, you know, the California Youth Authority, when I was there in the 70s, 1979, um, was like a school, you know, but you're confined there. And, but they had all the amenities that, uh, you know, high school would have. They had a gym, they had all the equipment, they had coaches, uh, and they had staff. And so in my particular case, because I was so distrust, distrustful of authority or anyone because of what uh. I had experienced as, a, as, a, as an adolescent, it was, it was very difficult for people who wanted to reach out to me to reach me because I had a barrier. Yeah. And that I have found that to be true for many of my brothers that I left behind mm-hmm. uh, in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we have similar, that, that's where our stories are similar. And that's why we're always told, or we were told when I first went in prison, if you're going to read a book, the first book you should read is the autobiography of Malcolm X mm-hmm. because his story, like ours, are very similar. So when did when did that book come to you? Uh, it didn't come right away. Um, I still, you know, continued to um, behave in a way that was not responsible uh, the first five, six, maybe seven years of my prison sentence. Uh, I still was, um, you know, uh, uh, impulsive. You know, I still did things that I shouldn't have done. I didn't follow the rules. I wasn't a rule-following kind of person. I had never been, so I didn't know how to really do that. Um, And uh, so it it took a while uh, for the maturation, for my maturation. I needed to mature. Uh, I needed to bump my head uh, some more times. I was that kind of person. I am that kind of person. Uh, I had brothers whose temperaments were completely different than mine, uh, very laid back, easygoing, you know, I was just the opposite. He, my brother James was an introvert. I was your uh, extrovert on steroids. <laughs> and a bit much for my parents to handle. So, yeah, uh, yeah and there's, there's kids like that. That's just part of my growth and my studies with what I've learned about child development. We're all not the same. And if you are ill-equipped to manage one like me, it could turn out like I turned out. So I try to look at my situation honestly, completely, uh, 
with with accountability, but also recognizing all of the injustices that has taken place in my life that has made it made it worse, not better. So. Yeah, that's a real uh, a real point of um, that's a real point of I don't know you know tension or um, concern. Would you like to um, talk a little bit about that? I mean, thirty six years and, and nine parole denials. You're five or six years. You're five or six years in. You have fifteen years to life, but you know that you've got at least fifteen years to do before you can even be considered for parole. And were, do you feel like you were given the tools necessary to work towards that first parole hearing? No, I was not given the, the tools to work towards that first parole, uh, nor was it ever uh, a consideration by the Department of Corrections Board of Parole hearings that I would be paroled uh, at, at, the, at, the, at, the, uh, at my earliest possible parole date, which was in 1988. My first parole date was in 1988. So, uh, and which is basically a documentary hearing. And then my second hearing after that, which was my initial parole consideration, was in 90, 1994. 1994. Uh, and, and then it was like three years. I was three year denied three times. I've been given a one year denial. And then it jumped back up to three-year denials because they changed the law. So it, it was, it's, oh, my God. It's, let me see if I can just uh, take you through the process, uh, you know, so that it, 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 it comes across clear. So after I, you know, started to wake up after the six or seven years of just continuing to be a knucklehead, um, I started to associate, disassociate myself from a lot of the peers that was helping me stay stuck in that mindset. And I started connecting with older inmates, older lifers, uh, people that had been involved in uh, some of the political movements in the 60s, people like Geronimo Pratt, uh, people like uh, Mujahid, Larry Green, uh, known for being one of the zebra killers, uh, who was a very smart, who is a very smart man, a very kind man, who over time had come to um, uh, change, you know, as we all do. Uh, he was someone that I come to, had come to admire. He encouraged me to read, asked me to read Autobiography of Malcolm X, asked me to read Before the Mayflower, uh, introduced me to uh, my Afrocentricity, which I was completely ignorant to prior to my incarceration. Never gave it a thought, Black history, to the level that I started to once I started to make that connection, with that came education. I clearly needed to improve my education. I hated school uh, as a kid. I didn't do well at it, so I felt a lot of shame uh, when it came to that, so I avoided it. Um, so going back to school, reading, I was being encouraged to read. I was being encouraged to write by a lot of the African-American, as well as Hispanic brothers, uh, doing time people that had been doing time prior to me for 20 years, 30 years. Uh, some of them are still there. Um, so that that was uh, also part of my transformation along with the weightlifting. The weightlifting, the, the weight pile, my commitment to fitness, you know, 
kept me away from hanging out in the yard and, you know, getting involved in, in, in prison drama and, and, you know, melees and drug, drug track, you know, drug deals and things of that nature. I was focused on exercising. I was focused on going to school, taking classes, no matter how difficult and how uncomfortable it felt. Uh, uh, at that time, there were classes that you could sign up for uh, to better yourself. There clearly was always a library, so I would start going to the library and reading books. Um, my relationship with my parents, that was another turning point. That started to improve because we started to have real conversations about things that they felt they had did, that they could have done differently when raising me as well as my siblings. Uh, and things that I clearly could have done differently had I known better that would have made all of our lives better. That freed all of us up. Forgiveness. I remember reading that forgiveness is a paradigm-shifting solution to anger. And I truly believe that because when I forgave my parents and they forgave me, I felt a weight of tension lift off of my shoulders. And I was able to continue to move forward, and so was, were they. Uh, and that's a beautiful, also a beautiful part of my story that I feel grateful to be able to share. So that's another part of the transformation, and that encouraged me to continue to do well. Uh, and so, uh, excuse over me. Yeah. May I may I ask how far you were into your into your sentence when you came to forgiveness? Because that is a that is a, a very powerful emotion um, and a lot of people even here on the outside are not able to get to that space. I mean, as we would say that the system is very unforgiving. So here you are in this position in the system um, that is very unforgiving. It's so much more around punishment. How, how long were you in to your sentence? Um, when I was in my sentence, uh, it was 1991 is when my parents and I started to uh, reconnect, uh, started to have real conversations about uh, feeling conversations. My father was not much of a, an affectionate man. He come from the deep south, Jim Crow south. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it was all about working hard and, and, you know, not a lot of hugs and kisses and I love yous. Uh, particularly from a, a male role model in his mm -hmm. life. Um, and so he didn't know really how to express that. He did do a very good job of passing on to me his work ethic. Uh, he became one of the most successful bricklayers, uh, masonry contractors in the East Bay, highly recognized by East Bay professional business people as Dixon's masonry and quality of service. Uh, my mother also instill in me and my siblings good work ethic, hard working and uh, dignity and just doing the right thing. We chose, my brothers and I, to, you know, go the wrong way. Uh, okay. So it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't on mom and pops, you know, it was it was really it was really our choices. Uh, but once we got once I got caught up in the system uh, the things that started to happen was my parents lost control. They lost their parental uh, control over what would happen to me if 
uh, I didn't go to school. So I was being placed in a lot of these places and, and eventually ended up in prison because, again, I became hardened at the way I was being just shuffled all over the state of California from one institution to another, never really addressing, the system never really addressing the family issue, which, which is something I give credit they do now. They're doing more now in addressing uh, when we have children like myself uh, that's maladaptive, that's having anger uh, issues, and that's you know that's out of control the way that I was. Um, they did not include the family in dealing with that issue. They singled me out and made me feel like there's that that there's something wrong with me. Um, and 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 that's where it was very painful and hurtful for me. Uh, to, to be able to deal with at 11 and 12 and 13 years old because I became a ward of court at 12. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, and then it, it, it carried on even into the prison. So once in the 90s, my parents and I started to have these heart-to-heart conversations because I matured. They also was aging and, you know, coming to terms with, with some of their own uh, self-reflections of what they thought needed to happen before they died particularly with reconnecting with me, my mother first, then my father, because she passed away in 2003, uh, he really stepped up. He started to come visit me regularly. We had heart-to-heart conversations. He asked me to forgive him. He apologized and vice versa. And so by that point, uh, I was fully engaged into positive programming, any kind of self-help that I could get involved in, learning as much as I can, staying away from trouble. And I did that for 20 years. And the injustice that I experienced, that my family experienced, um, and even the injustice towards my victim's family. This is just my opinion. They may have a different take on this uh, because I also believe in restorative justice, which is a new movement that has uh, been introduced in the last 10 years to California and the United States. I think it's a beautiful uh uh, method of dealing with uh, injustice uh, because it brings about healing for all rather than keeping them in pain, which the, so there's two types of justice, as you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Uh, there is the justice that we typically know when you harm someone, then you're held accountable and, and the system uh, gives you a sentence. Um, and within that sentence, they also feed in the pain and suffering of the victims to 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 help the, the system does that to help them keep you in prison more than you normally would be in prison, as they did in my case. So here's an example: um, the, the victims in my family, I attempted to make amends with them through restorative justice. But yet the district attorney's office continued to use them in parole hearings to keep me in prison, even though they knew I wasn't the one that murdered their son, their brother. That, to me, I I never was able to understand why. Right, because that's really not, I mean, that then in the end, it, it isn't about accountability. And it isn't about making sure that the the victims of harm are actually getting their needs met. Right. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying saying that. And how 
I, I can hear it in your your voice that you really you 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 feel deeply about about that injustice. Um, because it was an injustice not only to me but it was also to to the family because right. you, the, the first time that they came to my hearing, by, by all means, you know, I participated in some in a, in a crime that led to the death of their son and their brother. No right. doubt about it. It was right. not my intent. It was not my intent. Um, and I'm deeply, deeply regretful for what happened. I went through the period in my life where I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and it had become toxic. And toxic shame, we all know, is not healthy for a human being. Okay? We must right. resolve whatever issues that we have in, in, in a peaceful way, if we can, or if we can... We can ask for help, ask for help. But we, we need to resolve our issues so that we can put those issues behind us and move forward. A lot of times when we don't, you know, that just were not true. And the DA's office would allow that to happen. They would, they would write letters for the family, saying things in the letters about the case that were not even factual. These are the type of specific things that I experienced, that my family experienced for 20 years. I was eligible for parole. I really, truly, I, I got my first one-year parole. I represented myself. It was in, it was in 2000, uh, 2000, 2001. I was at, at dual vocational institution. Please bear with me when I, as I tell you the story. Um, and I had got to a point where I had learned a lot. I had taken a lot of classes. I had, uh, I had accomplished some things. So I had some certificates. I was doing well. I, was, I, was, I had vision. I was writing journals. Uh, my relationship with my family was going well. I saw hope in 2000. This was before my mother passed. That at that board hearing, after I'd already been to four previous, that I would be found suitable for parole because I had I had psychiatric evaluations that indicated that I had no longer had a lot of the, uh, you know, antisocial traits that I had prior to coming to prison. Uh, that was clear. And my record reflected that. And the record, what I mean by the record, is the record that states I was not the one who murdered someone. I was a co-defendant. I was an assessor. Okay, now we can take, we can go back, jump back and go back to the actual commitment offense where there's another misjustice involved in how my case was handled by a private attorney who pled me out. That's another conversation. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's another conversation. And we did try to hold the court accountable and miserably was rejected several times. But in 2000, I went to the board. I had prepared myself I felt that it was my rights of passage. It was my rights of passage to adulthood. My, my thinking was, I put myself here because I, of the choices that I made. So I don't need an attorney to speak to the Board of Parole hearings about what I've done, what I've done in my life, my past history, what I've done to change my attitude and beliefs and my life to ensure them that if they release me, I am someone worthy of being released. I'm ready to be a citizen of California. I felt at that point I had prepared myself and grown enough to be able to do that. That was going to be my life of passage. 
going back to Africa. You know, when you had to go out and you had to slay a lion to be become a, go from a boy to a man. Mm-hmm. Right? So this mm-hmm. is my rites of passage. I'm going to go in this board room, which, by the way, is not it, the, the the level of anxiety is is, is pretty high. Right. So, you're on the hot seat, okay? You got these two people that's judging you, that's got control over your life. It's going to tell you you can go home or you can stay in the penitentiary, which is not a very nice place. I don't care how many weights they got. Right. So, 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 so I, I prepared and I had some OGs. I had some OG lifers that were uh, computer guys. They, they had all represented themselves that I had connected with. They sat down, showed me how to go through all the all of my files and all of the paperwork, put together my remorse letters, you know, put together my parole plans. I mean, the whole nine yards. I went in there, and uh, it was interesting. While I was sitting out in the, in the lobby waiting for the, the inmate who was in there before me, in the boardroom before me, I could hear the COs uh, laughing about that person and his case, talking about his case and laughing about his case. And that made me feel very uncomfortable. I kept telling myself as I was sitting there and I had my folder, just focus, just focus, just stay focused. Block that out. Don't, don't pay attention to that. Just stay focused. Take a deep breath. This is what I'm going to. Because I'm starting to hyperventilate. I can feel it, okay? Uh, this is yeah. deep wow. pressure. So yeah. he, he eventually comes out. I go in. I have uh, an African-American lady as a, a deputy commissioner and a, and a gentleman, what I think is Hispanic, as the commissioner. I sit down, uh, we begin the hearing, uh, they ask me a few questions, they finally ask me why did I decide to represent myself and not come in with an attorney, and I told them, I said, because I am responsible for being here, and I feel that I'm capable of expressing to you why I'm here, what I've done to change, and how I can make sure that when I get out of here, I will be successful. I'm ready to do that. And it was a successful hearing. And they gave me, they didn't find me suitable, but they gave me a one-year denial. I've never had a one-year denial when I've had an attorney. And I've had several. And I've had some of the best in California, by the grace of God, and my family and extended friends who have invested a lot of money to get me out of prison. So, but I walked out of that room, even though I didn't walk out with a parole day. I walked in. This was in 2001. I walked out of that room in dual vacation, dual vocation uh, institution in Tracy, California, proud of myself. I mean, oh, my God, the, the sense of pride that I felt, the victory mm-hmm. that I felt, that I actually went in there and I was able to have a conversation with two commissioners about who Robert Dixon was and is. That was that was uh, that was an aha moment for me. Of uh, course. Even though even though I was not awarded the justice that I deserved, uh, and, and 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 interesting enough, just to, just to give you an idea of what it's like for people like myself and some of your comrades is still inside, and some of my comrades are still inside. The psychological warfare. That you are, that you, and, and when we go back to the Emancipation Proclamation and what the slaves, this, that was a psychological warfare that our people, our ancestors, had to overcome. They had to overcome physical abuse too, but the psychological, you know, that is not an easy thing 
to overcome. You have to have faith in God. You have to have uh, intestinal fortitude. You have to have uh, uh, strength, pure strength, to never give up. And after I got the one-year denial, prior to that one-year denial, I had had four board hearings. I never had a DA at the board hearings. It was always just the, the commissioners and my attorney, a state appointed. But after that one-year denial, I would go into a board hearing in 2006. So because of the bureaucracy of the system, I was supposed to go back to the board in one year. So I figured, my family and I, oh, okay, you got one year denial. Back then, when a, a lifer got a one-year denial, okay, that was an indicator that you were going to be found suitable the next hearing. Okay? Right. So I, I said, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. I'm transferred from dual vocational institution to Old Folsom. Okay? Mm, okay. Where Johnny Cash. Yeah. I was in that that dining hall where he actually gave a concert. That was pretty cool. Uh, I know I'm switching gears a little bit, but that was, yeah, there was some aspects of my prison experience that um, when I, when I, when I complete my book, I would like to describe because of its historical uh, significance, uh, uh, just the prisons themselves and old Folsom, when you pull up to that place, Oh my God! I felt uh, it felt eerie. It's uh, it's in a fish. It's uh, it's in a bowl like it's uh, right by the American River Dam. Uh, you can see the granite where the Chinese sliced that granite to build that old uh, building. Um, it had a lot of history to it. So yeah, it it was life changing for me to be in a place like that to know that so many others before me that had gone through there and. Uh, have overcome their own trials and tribulations and forms of injustice. And I was just mm-hmm. going through mine. So I get the old Folsom right after the one year denial and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to, you know, get ready for the next hearing. Uh, my family's all stoked. Uh, my friends and mentors are all ready to go. I got a business plan. I've served my time. Um, you know, I, at this point I had done 2000. Oh, I'm going to just say at least 20 years. Yeah, or more uh, on a 15 to life sentence. And I, I, you know, again, I wasn't the the actual shooter. I didn't kill anyone. Um, uh, You know, the amount of time that I served definitely did not fit, you know, my role in what what took place on December 27, 1983. Um, But I ended up in Old Folsom. So I get called to uh, a board hearing. I go into the board hearing. And uh, um, I face two commissioners. They want an updated psyche vial. Uh, they don't like the one that's before them, so they postpone my hearing. That takes another six months. I end up getting evaluated by a psychologist that gives me a range of moderate to high risk of dangerousness to public safety. What? Oh my God! Yes. Okay. Now it's been. Now this is when the. My pain and suffering really starts uh, is in 2006. So um, not to say that everything prior to that was painful. It was. But there were also moments that I had with my family. And I was able to get married in prison. And I, you know, so, you know, there was moments that uh, that helped shape me 
that my family and my wife helped me grow in. And so there's at that aspect as well. But after 2006, um, after the one-year denial, six years later, I ended up going back to board. And at that point, I walk into a boardroom with an attorney, uh, one of the best in California. He's a prisoner's rights attorney. His name is Charles Cabone. I'm going to put him out there. He's well-known. Um, he's represented me. And we walk into a room, and we find a DA for the first time. Uh, we find uh, three or two of, of, of my victims' uh, sisters in the room with uh, also a uh, victim's liaison. We had not been told that this was going to be the case. Uh, we had not been given uh, any kind of notice that family were going to be there. Uh, so that, again, was another really, really tough uh, moment for me. Uh, I, it was also a tough moment for them. As I could see, uh, it also was a, a moment for me to connect with really uh, with with the impact that my participation in that crime had on um, other people. I had not really given much thought to it prior to meeting them in my board hearing, uh, but on that day that changed because I, I literally saw the face uh, to the person that lost his life. Uh, uh, and I saw how they felt about it, and I was able to connect to what their pain, uh, I was able to empathize with that pain. I, I could honestly say that was the first day that, that I connected with empathy, is when I, when I met that family and uh, embraced everything that they had to say. And the commissioners, uh, I think based on the, the powerful impact that their presence had at that hearing, gave me, get this, a four-year denial. Wow. Now that was after I had already waited from you know, two thousand from two thousand one to two thousand six from one postponement from one you know I had to file an appeal on one of the psyche valves saying that this this person uh, was was recording inaccurate information. Uh, I really had to up my game in terms of due diligence. I had to go to the law library. I had to I had to look things up. You know I had to I had to understand what are these people saying about me. And what they were calling me was a sociopath. What they was describing is what we have in the White House right now. Okay? Right, right. That's what they were describing. Okay? If you ever read, uh, you know, there's a book written by 27 psychologists about the person that's in the White House right now. Okay? And I read it. A friend of mine sent it to me. The friend that sent it to me was actually a psychologist that was evaluating me, or not evaluating me, providing me counseling service while I was incarcerated, who decided after the services were completed, she had made such a profound connection with me, decided that she and her husband, who's also a psychologist who evaluated me for a board hearing, are now my friends. And her husband married me and my wife on February 14th of this year. How about that? So. Well. There are some blessings to come from uh, pain and suffering. And I, I just want to, I, I want to convey that. Uh, the, the suffering that I had withstood, the suffering that my father withstood, he died at 80 years old. Uh, he could not speak, but he lived the last five years of his life uh, fighting diabetes to watch me walk out of prison. That was his sole purpose in life. 
And the last time, the first time you and I talked, I got really emotional about that. And 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 uh, and I appreciate you allowing me to be able to uh, express those feelings uh, because they're very important to me. Uh, they denied my father and I the opportunity. They, being the border parole hearings, uh, denied my father because of political reasons, because of personal reasons. But I'm sure all of that played a part in them keeping me in prison for as long as they did, rather than letting me go. They had let a person out of prison who had murdered five people. This person was a friend of mine. He's a good guy. I mean, he had changed his life, but he was involved in a, in a crime in the, in the 60s that involved five people's lives being taken. He was released. He was released before me. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, why, why is that? The same can be said, you know, why would the system murder uh, Stanley Tookie Williams? who clearly, by living, would have had a much more profound impact on our society, particularly inner city, as well as, as, well as society as a whole, by allowing him to, to live. These are just questions that I ask I don't understand. I don't have an answer to. That that then that, of course, is a, a very big conversation. Robert, I would love for us to be able to finish with you um, talking about um, the end of your your time, what's happening with you now, and on a real positive note about what what you would like to share about your successes, what's happening for you now. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. So I'm going to get right to it. So after you know, I started to run into all of these bad board hearings. They just got worse and worse. I go to board in 2011. I'm denied two years. I go to board in 2015, 13. I get denied another three years. I go to board in 2015. I get denied another three years. I go to board in 2017. I get denied another three years. And each of those times, the family and the Alameda County DA appeared at my hearing. In 2015, I had received my first low risk of dangerousness to public safety from a forensic division psychologist. These are psychologists that the Board of Parole Hearing use to assess their life or inmates for parole hearing, for parole suitability. In 2015, I re received my first low risk of dangerousness, which is, is from what we are told and what What's been, what's been demonstrated, that is clearly a, a, a grounds for release. And when you look at how many years I had served up to that point, I think it was 30, um, yeah, they should have let me go. But instead, they wanted to latch on. They wanted to continue to allow the family, which is their right, to come in and say things about me, to deliberately keep me in prison. Um, uh, that were not true, to speak on things about my juvenile uh, uh, past uh, that had nothing to do with the, the pending case or the case on, on which I was incarcerated on, um, and just would say things. And so it started to have a psychological effect, impact on me to where the anxiety became so low, so high, I'm sorry, so high, that when I would go into the boardroom, when I went into the boardroom in 2017, I was, I was, 
I was, I was, I couldn't talk. I couldn't function. Um, it was weird. It was, oh my God. Uh, all of those hearings and all what I was being subjected to, uh, never rewarded for the, the achievements that I was making. Um, you know, it would be this thing, oh, you're doing a great job. Yeah, just keep up the good work, you know. Uh, the 500-pound elephant in the room is, is the psyche valve, which they were referring to the high psyche valve that I had got in 2008 from a psychologist that I had to file an appeal on and have his report revised. They would not completely, because they, they're going to always protect their own, they would not completely take that psychologist's evaluation out of my file they just modified it, okay? Hmm. So, so it had, this, this had caused me such a high-level anxiety. So in 2017, my father was on his deathbed. Uh, I was at the verge of just saying, you know what? F it, you know? I'm not going back to the board. I'm not going back to the board. I'm done with that, okay? Um, I'll just live my life in here um, the best I can, you know, um, and that's it. But I'm not going through that anymore. I believe I've done enough. It's 30, 33 years. It was 33 years at that time, 33, 34 years. And so I, you know, I said, I'm not going. And then all of a sudden, but I continue to participate in self-help. I continue to uh, engage in fitness. I continue to be a trainer. I continue to uh, uh, put on fitness events at prisons, uh, extravaganza. I provided the service. I trained firefighters uh, to go fight for CDF. Inmates, uh, yes, I, I continue to, uh, to, to do things that gave me a sense of, of uh, a purpose in prison. And that was fitness, that was, uh, that was reading, that was writing, that was uh, uh, mentoring uh, younger uh, brothers that uh, saw what I was doing and would approach me uh, and have a conversation uh, and staying to myself. Uh, the last 10 years, that's what I did. I stayed to myself. I became somewhat of a pariah. Um, I was very disciplined in my movement, where I went. If it wasn't a group or uh, facilitating a group or a college program or a visit, I was in my cell or exercising. Um, so, so, so something miraculously happened by the grace of God in uh, 2019. Nancy Skinner decided to offer a new bill because there was so much, uh, so much uh, call, so much of a call for uh, prison reform. Um, you know, mass incarceration had become a big topic globally, uh, even with the person in the White House trying to take credit, which, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah that, that's a joke. Uh, I give credit to people like Van Jones. You know, I give credit to, uh, you know, people like, uh, um, 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 uh, I can't think of all. My brain is just frazzled right now uh, after working two shifts. So I'm sorry. But there's a lot of folks that have been out there working to turn over the, the mass incarceration in, in, our, in our country. And, and it started here in 2019 with Nancy Skinner uh, authoring a bill, uh, 1347, 1437, uh, the uh, murder, felony murder rule, uh, overturning, you know, which means that if two people, three people commit a felony and one person 
commits a homicide, that person is only uh, guilty of that, that crime and should be sentenced to a life sentence, and the other should be sentenced to the lesser charge uh, of the felony. And so that was my prayer. That was my family's prayer. Uh, we, uh, it went through all 2019, 2019, and uh, when... Governor Brown went out of office in 2020. He signed it. Gavin uh, uh, Newsom uh, did not uh, overturn it. And July 20, July 18th, I my case was remanded back to the Alameda County Superior Court. Uh, I was transferred to Santa Rita County Jail, which after 36 years was oh that was that was an eye opener right there for itself. Just walking into that place. Uh, on July 22nd, I went to court. Uh, July 18th, I went to court. Um, the, the judge overturned my sentence from a life sentence to um, uh, to robbery, gave me two years parole, and set me free. And my best friends um, came and picked me up from Santa Rita. We went and had dinner. I stayed with them in Discovery Bay for the first week. And then the journey began with my best friend and mentor, Bob Stewart, uh, taking me everywhere um, through uh, Alameda to get my credentials, get my Social Security card, get my California ID. I didn't know how to do any of those things at 57 years old. Um, I was like a newborn baby uh, in this new world of technology. And by the grace of God, uh, I had met some wonderful people while I was in prison who were here to take the place that my parents uh, were not able to take and guide me through uh, all of the obstacles that I was going to face to get medical coverage, I mean, EBT, I mean, the whole nine yards. And in two weeks, I had a job. We went and got me a job in San Francisco working for Urban Alchemy. Uh, it, is a, they, it is a business that, 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 for the most part, does hire excellence coming out of prison. Most of them are long-term offenders. A lot of my brothers who are now starting to come out of prison uh, under, you know, either through the Board of Parole hearings or the new law, um, they're also practitioners for Urban Alchemy. So God bless uh, Lena Miller, who's the CEO of Urban Alchemy, and, and the things that she's doing to provide us an opportunity to get back into the workforce. And uh, I finally, you know, uh, got a chance to, you know, enter the, the social media world and uh, got on a website, a dating website, uh, met my wife, Connie Marie, and uh, we met at the Cheesecake Factory, me, her, and my best friend one night after a 49er game, and uh, we hit it off right away. Uh, she's a beautiful, energetic, rides a Harley. She's uh, outgoing, you know, loves fitness, very funny, uh, very loving, and the thing that I liked about her profile was that it said she's a hopeless romantic. I said, okay. And I tell you, she is truly a hopeless romantic. She's very romantic. And I love her very much. And so we're together. We've been married now since uh, July. Uh, 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 July, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, March, March 14th. Is it March 14th? Uh, I'm sorry, February 14th. February 14th, Valentine's Day. 
I, I'm getting tired today. Yes, so. well, <laughs> yes, you are work, working two and three jobs in a day. We'll we'll get you there. Yeah, so. You know, we'll. <laughs> yeah, can you tell I'm getting tired? <laughs> I, I can. And with right. that, let's yeah. do this. I feel like we could still have another conversation because I think there are some nuances that um, still want to be sussed out. I know that. Um, you know, your your friends that not only married you but took you around in the city were an integral part of you moving oh forward God. during your yeah. times, and we didn't get a yeah. chance to speak about them. Yeah. So yeah. let us say that we are going to do this again. We'll let the folks know that this will make this kind of a two-part series, okay. and we will, we will do this again. But let's end on that lovely note of yes. meeting your hopeless romantic yeah. and... Um, yeah. And we yeah. will do this again, okay? Okay, thank you. And uh, you have a great day. And I just, I love you for, you know, opening up this platform and allowing me to express and share my story. And I hope that it touches, you know, some of your audience, if not all, in a special place, you know, that, you know, not all of us that go through what I went through are, are just bad people. You know, we just, we need love. We need understanding. We need forgiveness. Uh we need second chances, you know, sometimes third chances, uh, but just don't give up. Don't give up. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. With that, Robert, we will speak to you again. Get some rest and have a beautiful rest of your day. All right. Bye-bye. Following is a short letter received by California Prison Focus on June 4th from Pelican Bay Prison. Dear California Prison Focus, first and foremost, I would like to thank you for your new issue of Prison Focus and to your staff for always reaching out through the years with holiday cards, etc. It's highly appreciated. In your newest issue, May 2020, I was extremely delighted to see my brother Pieface made at home. He was my legal mentor in Lancaster, gave me my first copy of Prison Focus and drilled me to fight the system by enrolling in Blackstone to receive my paralegal certificate, which I display proudly. We maintained contact but lost touch. However, due to the knowledge he instilled in me, I was able to successfully petition an habeas corpus get back in court, chew their ass up, and go from a 2039 out date to just nine months left. Uh, Resentenced to March 2021. It's thanks to Minister King X. With that said, I am a nonviolent, I am on a nonviolent term right now, less than a year parole, high risk medical, been violation free for a year and the parole board still denied me. My risk assessment score for reoffending is low. They still denied my release. Thank you for your time and I look forward to campaigning and advocating with you all in the future. Snoop. Consequently, his parole hearing was in May at a time when there was already 
over about 84,000 cases confirmed in the United States. So this was uh, well into the pandemic. And uh, that's what's going on. That's our show. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.